Well, you don't have to leave your home to see that today God's law is under attack. It used to be there was a lot of counsel that we needed to leave the cities, get out of the cities for the influence that was in the cities. Now, I understand somebody has to minister to the cities, but that's not my point this morning. My point this morning is that the cities have a direct feed into your home and into my home. And God's law is under attack. Flip through any TV for three minutes and it becomes very apparent. Lying, cheating, violence, murder, illicit sex, homosexuality, reality shows, They're all full of people being deceitful and selfish and manipulative. Do I need to talk about the soap operas? The Bachelor or The Bachelorette? Grey's Anatomy, Hawaii Five-O? The Modern Family? A show I'm not even familiar with, but it's called Scandal. And Spiritualism. Shows like The Good Witch... The Walking Dead, The Voice, Criminal Minds, Resurrection. I ask you, how many of these are promoting our Christian values as a Seventh-day Adventist? I believe God's law is under attack. Friends call me crazy, but I believe that TV and movies and the internet are trying to undo everything that the Holy Spirit is trying to do in your and my life. Oh, but there's good stuff on there too, Pastor. And by good stuff, you simply mean, well, it's just not as bad. Or maybe you could even make a case where it's not bad at all. But is it drawing you closer to Jesus? Is it spiritually uplifting? Or is it simply taking your time? And the overstimulation with all the rapid scene changes? That when you pull out your Bible, all of a sudden it seems dull and boring. There's no rapid scene changes. There's not something new and fresh hitting you at every moment. Scott Ritzmo was here a few weekends ago, and he tells the average American watches 4.7 hours of TV a day. Now, Pastor, I don't have time for a devotional life. A thoughtful hour. Who has the time for a thoughtful hour? Apparently, the average American has time for a thoughtful 4.7 hours of TV a day. The average American is on the internet an average of two hours a day and plays video games an average of one hour a day. I bet you a bunch of you in here never even touched a video game. So that means somebody's working around the clock to make up for you. So let's do the math. Let's suppose we should get eight hours of sleep a night. And let's suppose you work for about eight hours in a typical day or go to school for about eight hours in a typical day. 
Then you add your 4.7 hours of TV watching, your two hours on the internet, and your one hour playing video games. That leaves you about 20 minutes to do everything else. So I'm brushing my teeth, I'm reading one verse, and I'm out the door. But I'm watching good stuff. But what's it keeping you from doing that's maybe better stuff? In a time in earth's history of supreme importance, during the judgment hour, right before the return of Christ, we are being lulled asleep, friends. And by beholding, we are becoming changed. And God's law is under attack. Studies show that cigarettes will take 11 minutes, one cigarette, 11 minutes off your life. And you see these big warning labels. But you do not hear That one hour of TV, studies show, takes 22 minutes off your life. Twice as much. You thought you were just wasting an hour. You were wasting an hour and 22 minutes of your life. The average adolescent is watching 14,000 scenes of a sexual nature every year. And they're not upholding this standard. Well... We just watch the news. Well, research has also showed that all these images are coming so fast, so fast, so fast. And we're, as human beings, supposed to digest what we're seeing, to mourn for it, to feel bad for it, and all these things. But we're not doing any of that because it's the next thing, and it's the next thing, and it's the next thing. And before we know it, even the, the news can desensitize us. So we shouldn't watch the news? I'm not saying that, but I've been in homes where news is on 24-7. Oh, well, you're talking to the wrong guy. We don't get TV. Good. But you know you can watch anything on demand on the computer. What are you watching? What movies are you taking in? Well, I don't watch bad adult movies. I just watch the kids' movies. The cute, innocent, cartoony ones. Friends, God's law is under attack, even in children's movies, which seems odd to say because children's movies today have very adult content. God's law is under attack. By beholding, we become changed. This idea that we should only follow our hearts instead of the law. And in children's movies, lying, manipulation, stealing, and mystical practices are rampant. Don't believe me? Disney's animated film, Frozen. Have you heard about it? Have you been through the Walmart checkout line? Highest grossing animated film of all time, Frozen, brought in over $1.3 billion. By January of this year, it was the best-selling Blu-ray DVD sold in the United States. Parents are buying this DVD, they're placing it in front of their kids, and they're watching it over and over and over and over. Let me tell you the lyrics of one of the songs that maybe you've heard kids humming at Walmart. It says, don't let them in, don't let them see. 
Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they'll know. Let it go, let it go. And she starts doing all this sorcery stuff and stuff's coming out of her hands and things are whirling around. I'm tired of being this good girl. I'm going to let it go. Can't hold back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. Does that sound like rebellion to you? I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. And another verse. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Does that sound like it comes out of God's word? Or straight from the pit? What does Isaiah 8.20 says? If they speak not according to the law and the prophets, there is no light in them. We could go on all day. Another Disney cartoon, Milan 2. The story of Milan and an arranged marriage. According to the law, she has to marry a prince. However, she has a little pet red dragon who she calls over and over her most trusted friend. This dragon claims to be the king of the world. And his little red dragon plants doubts in her head and lies and cheats and steals and even is shown bringing back and communicating with the dead to change her mind that she shouldn't marry this guy that the law says, but she should follow her heart. And he uses all kinds of jokes and humor with all of these dead people. One direct quote from the movie, marked to children, by following my feelings, I wound up doing the right thing. I guess I learned that my duty is to my heart. And it's this big aha moment because the friend she's talking to says, my duty is to my heart? That's it. That makes sense. And she goes running off, repeats it to all the kids. My duty is to my heart. Follow my heart. I'll do the right thing. What does God's word say? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Can you trust your heart? You tell me, parents, when your teenagers get to be about 15, 16, 17, and they want a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you just tell them. You sit them on the couch and you say, honey, you just follow your heart. <laughs> Craziest thing I've ever heard. And then finally, towards the end of this movie, the guy that she falls in love with says, I love Milan. I don't care what the rules say. And how does it end up? They get together. They live happily ever after. The dragon ends up being reinstated as the king of the world and more talking to dead people. It's ridiculous. Everybody wins when they follow their heart. Friends, God's law is under attack. Fantasy Films came out with a Lego movie last year in which things begin with everyone following the direction. You're familiar with Legos. They've been around a while. And so in this film, everybody is following the directions and society is going just as it's supposed to until this rebellious group comes onto the scene and selects this one guy and says, you're the special that prophecy has spoken of. 
You have come to save the universe from Mr. Business, who is, I believe, God, but is made out to be a bad guy because he makes everyone follow the directions. Everything's cookie cutter. Nobody gets to be creative. We have to rebel against this, this force that's putting us down. And again, is this idea of following your heart. Even in the middle of this movie, it's talking about, he has this spiritual guide that talks to him about clearing his mind. And so we're introducing, we're putting our young people in front of these films that are teaching them to follow their heart, that to be rebellious is the thing to do, to not follow the rules or the directions, and you'll be happier, more fulfilled, all of this garbage. I'm telling you, over and over again, if you pay attention, God's law is under attack. The bad guy is God, and the devil is out to redeem the world. God is boring, and the devil's fun. Rules are lame, and following your heart leads to true happiness. Ordinary is, well, ordinary. But magic, spiritualism, talking with dead, now that's cool. Where evil is made to look good, and good is made to look evil. You don't even have to talk about recent movies. You can go back to the days of Peter Pan. Let's go to a world where we never have to grow up. You never have to grow old. You never have to work. You can do whatever you want. Do what thou wilt. You don't have to follow the law. Doesn't that kind of sound like what the devil deceived a third of the angels with? What happened to the good old days of television when TV was wholesome? Like, I love Lucy. Did you know Lucille Ball first was a major film actor? And it was known as career suicide to go from the big screen to the little screen of TV. But she did. And you know what was one of the major factors of that decision? Carl Lombard, who died in an airplane crash in 1942, came to visit with Lucille Ball in 1952. Came to visit. Are you with me? This spirit from the dead counseled her to take the role and said, take a chance, honey. And thus she made television history. Now we know that the living know that they will die, but the dead know not anything. Ecclesiastes 9.5. So the devil, in the form of Carol Lombard, counseled her to take the role. Why? It's a funny show. What's the problem? Stop and think what the show's about. What you're laughing at over and over and over again. A manipulative woman who was constantly lying to her husband and her friends, and it was all wrapped in laughter. Well, why don't you tell them the truth? Oh, no, we're not going to tell them the truth. The same tactic the devil uses today. If he can cloak it in laughter, make it seem funny, then it's harmless. And by mindless repetition, God's law is undermined. We could talk about Marilyn Monroe, Peter Sellers of the Pink Panther, Denzel Washington, Robin Williams, Keanu Reeves, 
Heath Ledger, Leonardo DiCaprio, Johnny Depp. All of them have the same stories. All of them have published places where you can go and see, and if you don't believe me, come to me after, where they say the dark world empowers us. We are like mediums, and we lay ourselves open to them, and they help us to know how to act this part. And they say, they'll just be very honest. I never could have acted that part. But I just laid myself open. I was possessed, and I was able to do something I never would have been able to do. In fact, Robin Williams in an interview even says, you know, back in the day, people used to get stoned for this stuff. Now it's just entertainment. In an interview with Larry King Live, Madonna said over and over and over again, she never lets her daughter watch television. Never, she said. Same with Helen Hunt and Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg. In fact, you can go to the top leading people in Apple and Microsoft and HP. They don't want their kids to have technology. Why? Because they've seen behind the curtain. And if we had enough sense, we wouldn't be so blinded by the curtain. The law of God is under attack. Let me read you a quote from Last Day Events, page 87 says, among the most dangerous resorts for pleasure is the theater. Instead of being a school of morality and virtue, as it often claimed, it is the very hotbed of immorality. Vicious habits and sinful propensities are strengthened and confirmed by these entertainments. Low songs, lewd gestures, expressions, and attitudes deprave the imagination and debase the morals. She wrote that a hundred years ago. Friends, the law of God is under attack. It's being undermined, belittled, seen as no longer necessary. But I believe it's something we need to focus on. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 19 is where we're going to begin this morning. Exodus chapter 19. And this is after quite an extensive courtship, if you will. You have already experienced or read about the ten plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the daily manna. They left Egypt just three months ago, but already they've traveled about 200 miles. And if you like to do math, that's about two to three miles a day. And so then we find them here at Mount Sinai. And we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. And there we read, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of, of Jacob, and tell to the children of Israel, excuse me, verse 4, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Notice that's talking about the past. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings. How I brought you to myself. I mean, this is deliverance, isn't it? Verse 5. Now, therefore, we're talking present tense. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That's the present. He doesn't say obey some random arbitrary law or obey some random thing on a piece of stone. He says obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then, this is future now, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. 
For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you notice in these three parts of past and present and future, the whole infinite emphasis is very personal. Jesus longs to have a personal relationship with them. To guide them by a cloud, to eventually tabernacle, to dwell with them. And he says, obey my voice, keep my commandments. This is personal. This is not slavish. But notice, Israel is not asked to obey as a condition of deliverance. We don't find this in Exodus chapter 1. You want to be delivered? All right. I got a list of rules. Once you get all these mastered, we'll talk. They're not earning their deliverance. They've been delivered. But if you want to go further now in your relationship with me, obey my voice. Obey my commands. And if you do that, you will be a a treasured possession. You will have a special purpose. You will be a peculiar people. Now, some of us, when we hear the word peculiar, we just think strange or weird, and it can mean that, but more in the original language, it means precious, that you can be a precious people to me. A kingdom of priests, what are priests but mediators between God and humanity? To go into all the world, it sounds very similar to the three angels' message, doesn't it? Obey me, keep my voice and my commands, that you can have a special purpose, that you can be peculiar, that you can be mediators, that you can be a kingdom of priests, you can be a holy nation, and it it talks in reference even to the whole world. That you can speak to them, about to all people, for all the earth is mine. To every language, tribe, tongue, and people. And so Moses brings this great message to the people, and they hear it, and they enter into this covenant with the Lord, and they say in verse 8, then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses runs up the mountain to tell God their response, and God tells him that the people need to consecrate themselves. And limits are placed on how close people can come to the mountain upon pain of death. And by the time we get to verse 16, we read, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Can you imagine being there? Thundering and lightning and clouds and trumpets and everybody is trembling. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. I can't imagine being in that multitude. 
Only time in the entire Old Testament where the gathered community of Israel meets with God directly and hears his voice without a mediator. All eyes and ears are transfixed in awe and in reverence. Everything tells us that God is here in person. As his might and his power are so overwhelmingly evident. I fear we don't focus on the majesty of God enough. Are you ever guilty of this? We turn God into something we can put in our pocket. Today, he's our pal. He's our understanding buddy. He's almost more like man's best friend than a God of the universe. And while he wants to be our best friend... We forget the awesomeness of who he is. Who spoke a word and things that did not exist came into existence. Now we lose sense of his power and his greatness. We see God at our command, not the other way around. We say things like, well, if you feel like it, no problem. If you don't, well, he's a God of grace. He understands. He is. But we cheapen God. And in so doing, we cheapen life itself. We treat God superficially, and in so doing, we ourselves become superficial. And the net result, a shallow view of God, leads to a shallow spirituality and a shallow sense of purpose and shallow relationships. In essence, a shallow life. No, the Lord is God, holy, exalted. He is the only wise, all-powerful God, our creator, maker, and savior, Lord. And he tells me what to do, and I have no safe option but to do it. There is no alternative, no multiple choice. We have but one directive, and that is to do his will. He's God. And as we return God to his rightful place and treat him and his word with the profoundest of respect, it's amazing how deep the roots of spiritual life can go. They're inexhaustible. But we think as Adventists, we figured it out. We've been to enough evangelistic series. I'll just click on the TV and unwind. So smoke is billowing up. God has descended in fire. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet is growing louder and louder. Chills are running up and down every spine, and it is in such a context that God audibly speaks the Ten Commandments. Do you suppose they were listening? I imagine that experience was etched. Do you ever have those types of experiences where you say things like, I can remember it like it was yesterday? Chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words. Think about that. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the Lord who got, your God who delivered you. And then we get into the commandments. This God that has delivered says, I 
sorry, I am the Lord your God, but verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. Forms the basis for all the others. Yahweh is to be first in every area of life. He alone deserves our allegiance, our obedience, our worshipful devotion. He's first in everything. It doesn't mean that we just tie the percentage of our time and this is God's, this is Sabbath, we'll do the church thing and the rest of the time we'll do our own thing. No, first in everything. In an American newspaper, the advertisement appeared, for sale, refrigerator, golf clubs, computer, 36-inch TV, and other household gods. By simply dropping an O, household goods became household gods. How easy it is to turn our goods into our gods. And if not our goods, then we're tempted to worship something else. But God says, I love you so much, I don't want to play second fiddle to anyone. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God. There's a relational word, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? Anything that comes between creates that emotional response. God doesn't want to compete. And notice, these idols are in reference to Yahweh because worship of idols of another God is already covered in the first commandment. So God is saying, I don't want representations of me. The real danger with images is that God becomes localized or contained by a creation of our hands. I can take him now wherever I want. For I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We often relate this one to swearing. It's not good. But I think it's bigger than that. Really, it's a misuse of the name, isn't it? Bruce A. Strong, 40 years old, unmarried, a computer programmer, instructor of Guam Community College, is waiting to find out if he can be God. Strong is officially making requests that his name legally be changed to God. No last name, no middle name, simply God. Sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? But his wish is not too far from our reality. You are a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Like it or not, you represent him all the time. Don't misuse the name. Guard the name Yahweh and properly present him. And if you're like me, that means you spend time on your knees saying, Lord, help me to properly represent you.
fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Any you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your strangers within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heavens and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He made it holy. God did that. What a beautiful relational portrait of God in this commandment. My friendship with you is so important. I'm giving you one day every week to celebrate this relationship together. More than anything else in the world, I want to get to know you and you me so we can be intimate friends. And he, the one talking, is the lawgiver. He is our creator. He's initiating. Is this salvation by works? No, this is resting in the good gifts he has promised, resting in the saving grace he has offered, resting in him. Now, commandments one through four define, protect, and nurture our relationship with God. And four, you could make a case with others as well. But while commandments five through ten define, protect, and nurture our relationships with other human beings, from family, friends, neighbors, strangers. Friends, the law is not just some written code, it's personal. And here, a heart-stirring portrait of God emerges right here in the Decalogue. There is no one in the universe more deeply and totally committed to preserving relationships than he. This whole great controversy has to do with how to preserve relationships. And he's giving us these huge hints, ten of them, how to preserve relationships. You think about it, every relationship that possibly matters to you matters to him. And so he gives you these ten. You want to preserve your relationship? Here's these ten. He's the God that values relationships above all else. And then Ten Commandments are proof of that fact. But notice also where he begins the Ten Commandments. He begins by prioritizing and protecting our relationship with him. Because if that relationship isn't where it needs to be, everything else is going to be subpar. first four have always preceded the last six. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. Fifth commandment. Now honor means more than simple obedience. Honor implies respect, care, affection, esteem. And it's really directed at adults if you break it down. You have the freedom to neglect their responsibilities. But it says, no, honor your father and your mother. I know many here are in the throes of that right now. Mom and dad are old. And you are providing for them. You are caring for them in a way, Lord help you, that is respectful, that is dignified, and it can take a whole bunch of time and energy and patience. 
But God says, honor your father and your mother. Verse 13, sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The New King James Version or NIV is a closer translation. Hebrew does not say thou shalt not kill. Old Testament is full of examples of war and animal sacrifice of lambs. No, you shall not murder is a better translation. God longs to protect human life. Oh, well, that's an easy one. I've never taken human life. How many times have you murdered somebody's reputation? Took you about 30 seconds. You just cut them off at the knees. Verse 14, seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Here God is protecting that most beautiful union between husband and wife. Did you know that sexually transmitted diseases remain a major public health challenge in the United States? In fact, one in four in the United States are infected with an STD. The CDC, Center of Disease Control, estimates that there are approximately 19 million new STD infections each year, almost half of them among young people 15 to 24 years of age. The cost of STDs to the U.S. health care system is estimated to be as much as $15.9 billion annually. Your copay would be minimal if we could follow this commandment. One article states it this way, a major reason so many Americans are prey to STDs is that, as they are called, is that it, they are, in fact, Americans, which is to say they initiate sexual intercourse early, marry late, and divorce often during the periods when they're not married and sometimes when they are. Many will have several sexual partners. Adult Americans average seven over a lifetime. Folks, you don't break the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment will break you. Is God a party pooper? Or is he just trying to protect you? When a man comes home and sees his wife, tears streaming down her cheeks because she has discovered something, don't tell me the law is not personal. It's very personal. This is not just some written code. Some rule book to be followed. Verse 15, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Nothing's more disruptive to life in close quarters than thievery. We've all seen it. We've all felt violated. The personal affront. God says, don't do it. Ninth commandment, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. People's reputation, status, even life can be at stake. We've seen that in the news enough times, haven't we? I think Brian Williams is on leave right now because he misrepresented the facts. Ask him if the law is not personal. It's not just in words, but falsehood of any kind. You can mislead by a face, a gesture of the hand, or even a presentation of the facts. My grandmother used to say, it's a horrible thing not to be trusted. 
tell the truth. It may be painful, but tell the truth. And lastly, the 10th, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is in your neighbor's house. Now, this commandment is unique because it's dealing with an inner attitude rather than an outward act. If coveting your neighbor's wife was an action, it would already be covered in the seventh commandment. If coveting your neighbor's property was an action, it would already be covered in the eighth commandment. No, to covet is an inner attitude. Covetousness is where it starts. It is to want something that you have no right to. And can lead us to break all the other nine. Yes, God cares about right attitudes and thoughts as well. So there they are. There's the ten. We've just looked at all ten. And all our lives we've heard, 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. And for many of us here, we have viewed the law as a written code, a table of stone, a list of demands. But the law is a written description of who God is. It's his character. You think about the sanctuary. The Ten Commandment law was in the Ark of the Covenant. It was foundational to who God was, his nature, his character. Even now in the heavenly sanctuary, the Ten Commandments are there. They're who God is. They are his character in words. In fact, Volume 7 of Bible Commentary 1131, Ellen White speaks of Jesus as the embodiment of the law of God. Jesus was the law in the flesh, in person. So the law of God is a character written in form, God's character written in form. So when we are breaking the law, we are breaking our relationship with Christ. Isn't that what God's word says? Remember what Joseph said? How can I do such a wicked thing and sin against the seventh commandment? That's not what he said. How can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? David, when his sin was pointed out, he said, I have sinned against the sixth and seventh commandment. No, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. You and you only, he says in Psalms 51, have I sinned. The prodigal son, he had his speech prepared. I have sinned against you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. No, the law is personal. The law is God's character in written form. And God says, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's personal. So many Christians today are throwing out the law. They're nailing the law to the cross. In essence, what they're doing is they're nailing Christ to the cross. People feel that the law is legalism. Oh, you're just trying to make me feel guilty. Did you know there's a direct correlation between feeling guilty and being guilty? You can't make me feel guilty for something I didn't do. But now all we want is when I come to church, we want to have a pick-me-up, and the law is pointing out my sin, it tells me I have to change, it's telling me I'm guilty and that I need Jesus. 
And the devil says, exactly. If I can just do away with the law, you won't think you need Jesus anymore, and I'll have you right where I want you doing anything I want you to do. No, friends, the covenant didn't do away with the law. The new covenant, I should say. Two more verses, and then we're done. Y'all are so patient. Pastor Ferguson will be back soon. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Was the fault on God's side? Does God make mistakes? Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 9, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. We just read about that. Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The fault was never with God or his law, but with the people. And God says, I will have a people who have God's law written in their hearts and in their mind. They will have my law, my character. They will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony. You see, the Jews had it backwards. They saw it as a written code, and they rejected the original. And now sometimes we take the original, and we reject the written code. And we don't realize they're one and the same. Last verse, Revelation 14, verse 1. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. We read, Now I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. The name of the Father, written on their foreheads, the God's character, if you will. Whoever has your mind has you. No, the law is not some arbitrary code and list of rules. It's deeply personal. It's personal with relationships. It's personal with God. And he longs to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And he longs to plant his character in you and to write his name on your forehead to claim you as his own. What if we are in a war zone today? What if we had to cross enemy territory and this field was littered with landmines would you have the guts to cross it 
There's places like that today in Cambodia still where they have huge signs and they say, warning, because there's so many landmines, we don't know where they are. And if you go in there, you're asking for trouble. Are there landmines in the world today? But what if someone knew where they all were and said, listen, I'll walk ahead of you. You just put your footsteps right behind mine. No, don't tell me what to do. I want to be independent. I can't speak for you, but if there's an authority who's also a trusted friend who loves me and tells me, follow me, and I'll lead you through those landmines. Don't you dare go this way. Stay over here. Otherwise, you'll get blown to bits. But if we follow on that path, if we follow in his footsteps, I'll gladly follow. Because it's personal. It's because of his love for you and me that he longs to plant his character in us. To write his name on your forehead and my forehead. To claim you as his own. And if you want to say yes to him this morning. If you want to say yes to his love. Yes to his law, his character. And have his name written on your forehead. Then I invite you to stand. Dear Heavenly Father, we live in a world today where your law is under attack. Why would the devil set sights on it with such precision if there wasn't a pearl, a gem there for us? Lord, I pray this morning we have seen the beauty of your law, how personal it is, and how you long for your law, your character, your very nature to be written on our foreheads that we may rightly represent you to this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.